Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by State Historian Emeritus Walt Woodward and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. And I'm Mary Donahue for Connecticut Explored. Fresh episodes of Grading the Nutmeg are brought to you every two weeks with support from our listeners. We've just launched our Facebook and Instagram pages. Look for Grading the Nutmeg podcast. Please follow us on social media to get the scoop on new episodes, behind-the-scenes photos, and information on upcoming programs. Although I've lived in Connecticut for many years, my home state is Indiana. So when I moved to Connecticut and found out that the state of Connecticut had one time claimed Cleveland, Ohio as part of Connecticut's land holdings, I was skeptical. In my fourth grade Indiana history class, I learned that the Old Northwest Territory included Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin. So why did Connecticut feel entitled to part of Ohio? It turns out that Connecticut may have had a leg to stand on. Today, we're going to get down to the bottom of this mystery. The Litchfield Historical Society is opening a new exhibition on Connecticut's Western Reserve on April 22, 2023, entitled Come to a Land of Milk and Honey. Here's what they say about the exhibit. The story of the Western Reserve can be told through any number of historical lenses, but it is primarily a story of people the people who felt compelled to leave Connecticut and New England for a new life in the West, and the people who chose to stay behind. The native peoples who were forced from their lands by the arrival of migrants, the enslaved men, women, and children who were brought to the reserve against their will, and the black migrants who chose to make their homes in Ohio despite continued discrimination. Today, my guests are Alex Dubois and Linda Hawking from the Litchfield Historical Society. Alex is the curator of collections. At the Society, he oversees the development and care of the institution's collection of material, culture, and art, and serves as the project lead for the Society's exhibitions. Where I know him well is that he is a regular contributor to Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history, Our current winter issue has his feature article on preserving Connecticut's historic places. Linda Hawking has served as the curator of library and archives at the Litchfield Historical Society since 2002. She oversees all aspects of acquisitions, description, and access to the Society's library and archives. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Before we dive into the stories, let's say, of the Native peoples of the Western Reserve, Let's talk about how the Western Reserve was formed. So the whole story that we're looking at really begins with an imperfect understanding of North America's geography. So the Royal Charter for Connecticut in 1662 established its boundaries using words instead of a map or any sort of description of how much land was there. So the charter describes the western border of Connecticut as the South Sea is a body of water that we know today as the Pacific Ocean. So they knew that there was an ocean on that side of the continent, but just not no idea how much land was between Connecticut and that ocean. So the charter sets its eastern border in Rhode Island, and a defining feature of a number of these colonial charters seems to be geographic ambiguity, causing any number of disputes and overlapping land claims. If you look at Connecticut's northern and southern borders and you stretch them out in a straight line all the way to the Pacific, you can understand just how much land the state can claim based on that charter. If Connecticut's western land claims were still held today, cities such as Albany, Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago, Omaha, and Salt Lake City would all be located in, or at least near the borders of, Connecticut. 
So Connecticut's not the only former colony that has these Western land claims. Virginia's charter, and I believe Georgia's as well, also includes sea-to-sea -sea precedence, which establishes the, east, the Western borders as the Pacific Ocean. During the Revolution, there's actually a lot of conflict over these Western land claims of certain states. Um, you sometimes see these states referred to as the landed states, because there are other states that have no foundation for Western land claims. And the fear was that the landed states, enlarged by these Western land claims, would create political and economic imbalance in the new nation. And that was a big cause of concern. In fact, the disputes over these Western lands are one of the factors that delays the ratification of the Articles of Confederation, which were adopted in 1777 but not ratified till 1781. So this issue was really brought to a head after the war when Britain cedes a large amount of land east of the Mississippi to America. Um, and this sort of reinvigorates these Western land claims. And then beginning in the 1780s, the states start ceding these Western land claims to the federal government for what they call the general benefit of the new nation. In a way, it really makes sense, because if you look at Connecticut, there's no way it could govern a piece of land running all the way to the Pacific Ocean. But there are two exceptions to this. One is that Virginia decides to keep uh, an area of present-day Ohio to give as payments to its Revolutionary War soldiers. This is called the Virginia Military District. And following that model, Connecticut decides to keep a land, piece of land called the Connecticut Western Reserve, on the southern border of Lake Erie, directly west of the Pennsylvania border. And this is really the whole origin of what we're talking about, is this, this one decision to keep this piece of land for Connecticut. And how is that recognized legally? So, as far as we're, I mean, as far as we're aware, there, you know, the, the federal government recognizes Connecticut's yeah. claim. Um, we've not seen any, we've seen people unhappy with it, but no real challenges to this decision to keep the Western Reserve. I know that... On paper, they've recognized that this piece of Ohio is now owned by, or is part of Connecticut, but obviously there were Native peoples living there. Could you tell us a little bit about them? Um, so this is something we really want to communicate in our project, in our exhibit, and also just the research we're doing, is that the Western Reserve story is really one of resettlement, not settlement. So while Connecticut and other states are arguing that they have the rightful claim over these lands, um, there's little thought given to the fact that there's a whole population of Native people who have lived here and, and claimed this land and used this land for a long time. So, Linda, I know you've been spending time to really seek out those stories and that information from the Native community. What have you found so far? Um, well, a lot of what we found so far um, is, unsurprisingly, the perspective of the white settlers. And uh, we've, we've tried to find some Native um, voices, but we haven't had a whole lot of luck with that. Um, we continue to look through all sorts of archival sources here um, in Ohio, in books that are available online. And we have also tried contacting um, the various tribes where they are now, which is no longer um, in Ohio for the most part. So... Um, Things we found are um, disputes that went to court. So, you know, th there might be a dispute between a Native person or um, the Native person might have been arrested for something that, you know, they, they were perceived to have done to a white settler. And so, you know, it's, it's a real challenge. Um, if you consider the language barriers, I believe that most of what was written was written by the white settlers, and also when you consider that most of what was saved and preserved was considered, you know, it was what was considered historically important. Yeah, so we've had we've had some luck looking in the National Archives collection, particularly the Founders Online database, to find some really important documents that were actually written in the voices of the Native people who are affected by this westward migration. One of them is from 1790, 
written from the Seneca chiefs to George Washington. And there's a few key passages in it that I'd like to read. The first is this. Um, So they write, We mean to open our hearts before you, and we earnestly desire that you will let us clearly understand what you resolve to do. When our chiefs returned from the Treaty of Fort Stanwix and laid before our council what had been done there, our nation was surprised to hear how great a country you had compelled them to give up to you without paying us anything for it. Everyone said your hearts were yet swelled with resentment against us for what had happened during the war, but that one day you would reconsider it with more kindness. We asked each other what we had done to deserve such a severe chastisement. This is uh, December 1st, 1790, and it's referring to a treaty that was signed in which the Native representatives gave up some, some of their land claims in Ohio. But one of the more telling documents we found is, is this is from 1803, um, and this is actually a letter from President Thomas Jefferson to future President William Henry Harrison, in which he lays out uh, an approach to relocating or forcibly removing tribal nations living in the Indiana Territory. So it's not particular to Ohio, um, but it does sort of lay out what they thought was, you know, appropriate way to gain this land. And a few of the quotes are, you know, again, really telling, really almost difficult for us to read today. So I'll read a few of them. To promote this disposition to exchange lands, which they have to spare and we want for for necessaries, for which we have to spare and they want, we shall push our trading houses and be glad to see the good and influential individuals among them now in debt. Because we observe that when these debts get beyond what the individuals can pay, they become willing to lop them off by a session of lands. It continues, In this way our settlements will gradually circumscribe and approach the Indians, and they will in time either incorporate with us as citizens of the U.S. or remove beyond the Mississippi. The former is certainly the termination of their history most happy for themselves, but in the whole course of this it is essential to cultivate their love. Should any tribe be foolhardy enough to take up the hatchet at any time, the seizing of the whole country of that tribe and driving them across the Mississippi as the only condition of peace would be an example to others and furtherance of our final consolidation. So that really lays out a strategy of just get them in debt, seize their property, and if that fails, then we'll use whatever violence and force necessary to remove them. Which leads me to ask you about the Indian Removal Act. How does that affect the Western Reserve? So our understanding is that by the time the Indian Removal Act is signed into law, most of Ohio's native populations have already been forced further west. I think the latest date we saw was for the Wyandotte tribe, and that was in the 1840s, sort of their last reservation being taken from them. But, you know, the story of the Western Reserve, in many ways, in in this case as well, is sort of a, a testing ground, a proving ground for how America approaches westward expansion, and this is just one facet of it. Um, there's another uh, account that I found in a newspaper article in the Connecticut Current. It was dated March 9th, 1795. It was part of a letter, um, and the letter was dated Greenville, January 23rd. The Indians say the Great Spirit opened their eyes and directed them to make peace with the United States. But I rather believe it was the glare of our bayonets on the 20th of August last that has illuminated their minds. Boy, that's, that's a clear threat. So what happens next in the Western Reserve? So when we talk about the Western Reserve, the funny thing is that the period in which it actually belongs to the state of Connecticut is really short. So it's called the Connecticut Western Reserve or New Connecticut for a long time. But in terms of a legal entity, it's probably only a few years. So Connecticut keeps the reserve for about, I think it's nine years before they decide to sell it to a group of private investors. And a group of Connecticut land speculators forms hoping to obtain title to the entirety of the reserve. Um, This is about 35 investor groups representing 57 individuals in our state. 
they adopt articles of association, they organize into something called the Connecticut Land Company, and their bid is ultimately the one accepted by the state in 1795. So the company pays $1.2 million at that time for an estimated 3 million acres of land in the reserve. And this purchase is made on credit, which becomes important later on. And they lay out terms for repayment and interest. Importantly for the people of Connecticut, the state decides that the proceeds from the Western Reserve sale should go um, towards the support of public education. And they actually set up something called the Connecticut School Fund with that money. So Connecticut's goal is really to support schools in Connecticut rather than try to govern or settle an area out west, and they leave that to the private investors. Well, I'm a little worried about the credit situation, but let's come back to that. So the Connecticut Land Company is formed, and I know the exhibit has a lot of material about the surveyors that have to go out and lay out the properties so people know what they're getting when they buy property there. Could you tell us about the surveying of that land? So... The people who were sent out to survey the reserve are really the ones creating some of the earliest accounts we have of what the land was like, what their interactions were with native populations, and even a small number of migrants who are already moved onto that land. And surveying was really the first step that was taken by the Connecticut Land Company, and they financed surveying expeditions in 1796 and 1797. And only by surveying the reserve could they really take an immense and relatively unknown tract of land far removed from Connecticut and turn it into a commodity that they could sell. So the first, the first real task was to go look at the land, lay out the townships into a standardized size, and the Connecticut Land Company used five square mile townships, even though the government had stipulated that they should use six square mile townships. So they took some license. Um, they marked the boundaries of the townships. They recorded the quality of the land, especially the presence of things like good timber, water sources, the quality of the soil, how flat or how steep it was, and how suitable it would be for farming. And what we learned reading the surveyor's accounts is that a lot of land they came across was what they called swamp, so not so suitable. And in this way, the reserve really becomes something that can be broken into standardized pieces. You can locate what's going on with, you know, on a map if you have one. You can find the township that you bought or the land that you bought, and you can easily exchange parcels that you own with parcels of similar size, shape, and value of other people. Is there a map that shows all this and... I know that you've included in the exhibit some of the advertising or promotion to get people to buy this property. I would be so nervous to buy a piece of property in this big unknown area. How did they advertise it and how did they get people to go there? Yeah, so the the idea of the advertisements being the way that people picked a piece of land is really interesting because one thing that we wanted to look at is how much buyers are aware of what the reality is versus what they're being sold by someone whose interest is to sell them a piece of land. That's what I'd be worried about right yeah. there. <laughs> um, so the surveyors are actually, when they're, when they're doing their work, they are taking really good notes because it's their job to do so and report back to the land company. So their accounts are probably more honest than what you would see in, a, in an advertisement or a land, uh, you know, broadside advertising. Their reports sale. don't really uh, affect them per se. They're just saying, these are the facts. This is what it is. Mm-hmm. They're not. They don't have to try to sell sell these parcels in. Yeah. Right. But the people trying to sell them. Um, so one of them in particular, who we've read a lot of correspondence from, um, was Elijah Boardman, who was a, a business owner in New Milford, um, and he also later became a state sen- a senator from the state of Connecticut. Um, so Boardman had a land agent in Ohio. And he frequently wrote to him and would comment on the kind of lots they had. And he wanted the lots to include combinations of woodland 
and uh, cleared land for farming, and there had to be some sort of water source. So they were very aware of that, you know, if someone's going to move to this plot of land, it needs to have all of these features. So if they had one, you know, five mile square that was swampy, for instance, they might not sell that for as much money as they sold the perfect plot that had all of those different components. And I know you talk about the push and pull factors, you know, who, what's pushing people to go there out and from Connecticut and what's pulling people to go there? What are, what are those things? So in terms of push factors, so why Connecticut residents are looking elsewhere, well, the big one that we always talk about is just the amount of available land here in Connecticut versus the size of the population. So there's just not enough land in Connecticut for everyone who wants it to find a piece of land to do farming to make their own home. So a specific resource we also see mentioned is timber. So there's a lack of timber, available timber in Connecticut for fuel, for building. Um, And that seems odd now that we're talking today about efforts to reforest Connecticut. But they had really depleted that resource down. There's also limited agricultural yields happening at the time. So there's a period of environmental change happening during this time period, a decade that's colder than normal temperature between 1810 and 1820, And even in 1815, there's a a volcanic eruption that affected global weather patterns. And all this led to there being less crops grown and produced in Connecticut at this time. There's also political pressure. So Connecticut is is a state where there are very strong political party loyalties. Federalists in Connecticut, often seen as the standing order, but facing a challenge from Democratic or Jeffersonian Republicans, were even accused of harassing their political opponents using libel, bankruptcy, and imprisonment laws. One source that we came across even claimed that anti-federalists in Connecticut faced emigration or imprisonment. So if you are an anti-federalist in Connecticut, you might be looking elsewhere to make, to make your life. Um, there's also religious pressure. So up until Connecticut adopted a new state constitution in 1818, the Congregational Church was the established church of the state. And if you were someone who didn't want to be as involved in that, you might look elsewhere again. And the Western Reserve offered um, a more voluntary religious life. Linda, I think you've got some quotes about uh, sort of the two sides of the coin. Why, you know, what it's like in Ohio on the plus positive side and what it's like in Ohio on the negative side. Um, Margaret Van Horn Dwight kept a diary of her trip when she set out in 1810 to go to Ohio. She had promised her cousin that when she arrived, she would send this diary back to her. So Margaret um, Dwight is, is very... Um, open with her cousin about her feelings about the people she meets along the way and even the people she's traveling with. Um, She starts off very early on. She had traveled there with a deacon and she says, I will never go to New Connecticut with a deacon again for we put up at every buy place in the country to save expense. And then she says later on, this is a few um, weeks into the journey when her notions about what she's going to find there and how good this is going to be may be a little... um, you know, she might have have a little lower expectation. She says, but I've jolted off most of my high notions, and perhaps I may be willing to descend from a judge to a blacksmith. That's when she's talking about potential husbands. She then adds, if I live to return, I will wait till the new turnpike is finished. The roads were apparently terrible. Um, She talks about having to get out and walk because there are so many stones and boulders that they had to climb over. And then one of her, um, one of the quotes that I enjoyed the most from her diary was, we have concluded the reason so few are willing to return from the Western country is not that the country is so good, but because the journey is so bad. 
Boy, that tells you a lot. It sure does. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, um, there unfortunately, there aren't that many accounts um, of women traveling there, but we do know that they were taken there. Um, we do know, for instance, um, one of the people that Elijah Boardman contracted with to go out and build him a mill, um, he was in the contract instructed to bring his wife so that she could cook for and do the washing for the workmen. So they didn't even really have any agency in whether they would go or what they would do when, we, when they got there. We'll be back in a minute with our guest. I'm Kathy Hermes, the new publisher of Connecticut Explored. If you're enjoying our Grading the Nutmeg podcasts, I feel sure you'll love our print magazine with its articles, photo essays, and all the news about upcoming exhibits, history-related events, and historic places to visit. Subscribe now at ctexplored.org. Thanks for listening. Now back to our Grading the Nutmeg podcast. So the surveyors really were the first on-the-ground people looking at this land. What other kind of comments did they make? Yeah, so one of our favorite surveyors journals that we came across is from a, a man named Moses Warren Jr. from Lyme, Connecticut. And he went out with both the 1796 and 1797 surveying parties. And he wrote some of the most honest and colorful descriptions of what he was finding in the Western Reserve. And these journals are today in the collection of the Connecticut State Library. But I have a few, we have a few favorite quotes that we found. Um, the first one's from June 16th, 1797, and he writes, Thunder and hard rain this morning. I have a pot pie of our raccoon. It is now cooked and smells well. I think I will stop writing and try it. About 10, it breaks a little, but another thunder shower is coming from the southwest, but it breaks so much that at half after 11, we eat the remainder of the raccoon and set out to run east. So one of the small stories that we've sort of followed in these is what they're actually finding for food, what they're hunting, what they're catching. Um, and it seems one of their favorite way to prepare a lot of this is to put it in what they call pot pie. So they've eaten possum pot pie and other venison pot pie. But one of the most colorful passages that he does is from later that month, June 29th, 1797. And he says, gnats and mosquitoes plenty, and I think even more raving than ever, the lowlands begin to dry, and I think every day produces myriads of the gentry. I can but marvel that my ancient namesake, when plaguing Pharaoh and the Egyptians, omitted gnats and mosquitoes, for they're certainly more formidable than frogs. So Moses is actually cl very clearly a, a pretty well-educated man who's going out to Ohio, and he uses a lot of biblical and historical references in how he describes it. Um, but it's not all not all fun and games, not all lighthearted. Um, there are some passages that really tell us how difficult this work was. And one from August of 1797 says... Mr. Bicknell is dead, and P. Washburn, apprentice to Mr. Doan also. Found the people at Cleveland in pretty good spirits, but Solomon Giddings, A. Mason, J. Bass, D. Clark, Solomon Shepard, and L. Hanchett and Lindsay have been having the ague and fever. And ague, either meaning malaria or some other sort of fever-inducing illness, is a pretty constant factor of their life. I mean, it's, it's rare for him to say, I feel pretty good today. He's usually fighting off some sort of illness. Um, and in that passage, we learned that not everyone who went out on these surveying expeditions made it back to Connecticut. So there were a few deaths, um, both in their parties and in some of the other people that are leaving in the Western Reserve. It seems pretty rugged. You're really living on the land and you don't have cities and villages and places to encounter. Like in Connecticut, you'd be going down the road and every 15 miles, you'd have a little, at least a four corner kind of a village. This is just completely in what I want to describe almost as a wilderness. 
so so that yeah so they so the surveyors are really on the ground and sending back their reports in the meantime how are the officers of the Connecticut Land Company doing yeah so what we know about the reserve in the sort of first two decades of the story is that settlement occurs slowly very slowly um, it really doesn't take off until after the War of 1812, at a point when Ohio is already a state. Um, Ohio, being on the front lines of the, of the war with Britain, is now in a more stable place. America has moved the sort of frontier past Ohio's borders and acquired more land. And at the same time, the governments continued to force Native people from their homes and move them to restricted lands further west. But in the sort of first two decades of settlement, the Connecticut Land Company doesn't do a lot to help make this an easier process. So the Connecticut Land Company is woefully unorganized when it came to promoting sales in any concerted or collective way. As we've talked about, many investors are having to circulate their own advertisement in the East, and they rely on land agents and lawyers to oversee sales in the West. So in terms of how it's organized, there's a lot of delay, there's a lot of lack of communication. The way they're approaching this is also really scattered. So the land company is giving parcels to the investors that are on a lottery system, which each... Each investor is receiving a quantity of parcels reflecting how much they had invested. But none of the parcels are together, so they're scattered throughout the Western oh. Reserve. <laughs> so you so, can't even go to one place and visit all of your parcels that you received as part of the owner of the company. Yep, and okay. potential settlers could be buying land anywhere on the reserve. Um, they might establish, they might prioritize more established townships, but others could prioritize larger parcels that are more undeveloped that could be a little bit cheaper. So in terms of both how land is divided amongst investors and how it's sold to the potential settlers, it's really scattered. And that inhibits the ability to form, you know, more, more large townships and get all the, all the trades. And, and so we're saying settlers. At this point, is it mostly white Protestant Americans that, are, that have been here for a while that are coming from Connecticut? Or are we starting to see immigrants come in from other countries? So in the reserve, what we've seen is, is mostly white New England migrants coming in, um, sometimes as families, as family units, sometimes as singular uh, men who would come in and take up a trade, uh, potentially set up a household and then go back and bring bring forth their family. Elsewhere in Ohio and then late in later years, we do see the arrival of immigrant groups. I mean, the southern route to the Western Reserve goes through Pennsylvania. And in as Margaret Van Horn Dwight said, you see a lot of immigrant recent arrivals in America who are living there and they'll continue into Ohio, into the reserve in future, future years. Now, I know that um, Litchfield was really involved in this story because you chose it to do your exhibition on, for one thing, but it's such a big story. What's the Litchfield connection to the Western Reserve? Well, there are, there are so many. Um, if you look at the map and you see the town names, you'll find a Talmadge, you'll find a Litchfield, you'll find a Canfield. Yeah, I mean... This, this story, Boardman. Boardman, this story is so involved in every town in Connecticut, it seems like. So every town has some aspect of the story that, that is their own. But Litchfield, like others, they were a group of three men um, who were part of the initial investors in the Connecticut Land Company that were from Litchfield. And they continued to write to one another over the, ne- you know, the next few years about their business interests and trying to promote further settlement. One of them is living in the Western Reserve one in Litchfield, and then one is actually going to the Louisiana Purchase Territory, um, so moving farther south. We also have you know people like Talmadge, Benjamin Talmadge, who was Washington's spymaster during the Revolution, who gets involved at a sort of later date in land sales in Ohio, uh, both in the reserve and farther south near Marietta. 
Um, we have in Goshen, Connecticut, which is just north of Litchfield, a man named David Hudson who takes a party over and founds Hudson, Connecticut. Um, he's heavily involved in education and the establishment of the first college in the Western Reserve. Um, you can trace things like town planning and architecture from Litchfield and other towns in Connecticut and find them recreated in some ways in some townships in Ohio. Um, and for our purposes, and something we've really found interesting to research is looking at the two schools that were in Litchfield, the Litchfield Law School, the first law school in the country, and Sarah Pierce's Litchfield Female Academy, and tracing the students who came to those two schools who had an impact in Ohio's history. So we know a number of, of young lawyers were going west and becoming some of the earliest lawyers in Ohio and other places, and they'd be involved in Ohio politics and founding you know, Ohio's um, laws and their legal system. And then in, from the Female Academy side, we know that a number of students attended the academy from Ohio, and then a further number left Connecticut and moved to Ohio after they had studied at the school. And in one case, we know that there is a, a student who's coming from Ohio to the Litchfield Female Academy in order to learn how to run an advanced school for women's education. So she actually had sponsors in Kinsman, Ohio, who sent her to Litchfield in order to learn how to run a school like Sarah Pierce did to take that back to Ohio and implement there. And her name was Irene Hickox Scranton. You know, I always think that nowadays you think of Litchfield as such a, you know, sort of bucolic, rural, colonial, beautiful setting. But in its day, it was influential. It had the law school, which I recommend taking a tour of the law school if you ever get a chance. Such impact on our politics and legal system. And it was wealthy. It was a prosperous town, so people had money to invest in these kinds of endeavors like the Connecticut Land Company. What happens to the Connecticut Land Company? So the Connecticut Land Company eventually went bankrupt. So their their whole investment, their whole plan to... I knew the credit thing was going to come back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and they just, the land, the land investors just cannot sell enough land or get enough profit from it. So one of the things we see in their notes all the time, their letters and correspondence, is sort of they're trying to wrestle with what they can sell their land for and still make a profit. In some cases, they have to sell um, at cost or, you know, just above cost. So the company actually dissolves in 1809. Any outstanding land is divided up amongst the investors in a final lottery. Um, and then the remaining mess of what happens falls to the administrators of the Connecticut School Fund. And they really have to continue to collect payments, resolve outstanding debts, and the fund's records do show that a large amount of interest on the, on the land company's original debt was unpaid. And some of the collateral that they had offered was actually unsafe. So the land company going bust left some administrators in Connecticut, you know, scrambling to try to realize those funds that were supposed to go to the school fund. I tell you, when I, when I took Indiana history in the fourth grade, it seemed like such a simple process. It was first we had Native Americans, then we had settlers and log cabins, and life went on. And then you realize that, you know, that's such a tiny perspective. You've got to think about the fact that these were business endeavors and you had all these investors so far away from this property and you had all this money involved because a million two is a lot of money lot in of money that time, time period to say the least yeah. and in my mind to knowing what we have today you have practically no communication with these people because it takes so long to get a letter over the bad roads so it, it's a big story definitely now so we they ended they end up going bankrupt and they divide out the land in the meantime, Ohio is moving towards statehood. So are the boundaries set for Ohio? It, are, it includes the Western Reserve, and they've got a, 
a firm idea of the boundaries for the state? Yeah, so when we talk about the Western Reserve, we are sort of generalizing that term to mean um, a period of time, a regional identity of the Western Reserve. But as an entity, it only existed until 1803, and then Ohio became a state. So Ohio was, the lands of Ohio were part of the Northwest Territory first, and then that that um, ordinances in the Northwest Territory set standards for how states would be admitted to the Union, and Ohio was admitted in 1803. So at the time that Ohio becomes a state, the Western Reserve is no longer its own separate legal entity. Um, it's sort of just a region, and they continue to re- refer to it as the Western Reserve, as New Connecticut. And that's one of the interesting questions for us is how, you know, the legacy of the Western Reserve goes well beyond its history as a, you know, as a land owned by the Connecticut Land Company. Because people well into the 19th century keep referring to it as the Western Reserve. It maintains that identity. Now, you've done a little work and been able to find a little bit of information about the relationship of enslaved people and the Western Reserve and the fact that Ohio did not have slavery. Could you tell us what you found there? Yeah, so this is an area that we're still researching. Um, We need to find more examples of narratives and stories by um, either enslaved men or women who went there or free men or women who went there after, you know, after Ohio became a state. So we're not, we haven't found much from the period when it was early settlement that includes black settlers moving into Ohio. We do know that the state constitution of Ohio forbade slavery um, we know that the Western Reserve became a sort of a hotbed of abolition activity tied likely to its New England origins, its New England heritage, and the continued relationship between those two places. But the state of Ohio did implement certain laws moving, you know, in the first few decades of the 19th century that made it difficult for black migrants to come to Ohio. So even though slavery wasn't allowed, there were certain prejudicial laws in, in place that would stop or inhibit black people from coming to Ohio. But Certain, like educational institutions in the Western Reserve became places that hosted abolitionist speakers and hosted abolitionist efforts, and that's something that we want to look at as well, sort of that unique history that happened in the northeast corner of Ohio. Yeah, that seems like Connecticut could have had a influence on that thinking, and if they had followed some of those educational lines you were talking about earlier. So what do you think was the most surprising thing that you found when you started this research? So for our purposes, when we were doing the planning of this for our exhibit. And we actually did a lot of evaluation early on with potential audience members and our visitors was just that there was a real lack of awareness of this story today. If visitors had any idea about the Western Reserve, it might just be a familiarity with the term Western Reserve and not a real sense of what that meant and how Connecticut was involved. So that's sort of been the case um, across all our audiences was just a general understanding that this was an important story, a really vast story, rich, and that we could tell in six ex- exhibits, never mind one exhibit, but that our visitors didn't have much background knowledge. So one thing we wanted to do is really do a lot of research and present it in a variety of formats to our visitors so they can really understand just how important this story is. And Linda, when you were in all these various archives, either in paper or digital, what did you find that was surprising or what was the most had the most impact on you? Yeah, I mean, I I guess one of the things that surprised me was just how much was available online. So if you're interested in this story or if you want to do a history day project or, you know, um, a classroom project, Case Western Reserve, the Ohio History Central, um, Internet Archive, and many Connecticut repositories as well, and even smaller repositories throughout Ohio have resources online. So a number of these diaries we read, we read them online. 
Um, and one of the um, challenges is that because many of these people migrated to Ohio, their papers went with them. And we're here in Connecticut doing this research in a pandemic. And so we couldn't go follow the papers. Um, Alex did go out there earlier last fall yeah, um, and was able to look at some things. But we couldn't have, I don't think, done this exhibit without many trips to Ohio 15 or 20 years ago. So I think stories like this are becoming more accessible to everyone. And I think that's a really great thing. That is a great thing. This is such a great topic. And I think this is just gonna be of interest to people all over Connecticut and descendants of people who came from Connecticut that are now in Ohio. Can you tell me about what programs you've got coming up with the exhibition and how people can find out more? So the exhibit opens on April 21st, so just a few months from the time that we're recording. But with the exhibit, we have a whole calendar of programming that's going to tell some different stories or get, get to this exhibit topic from some different lenses. So we'll have an opening lecture the weekend after the exhibit opens, um, and that will look at sort of tracing family movements from New England to Ohio. We're going to have a lecture about telling American history through maps, and maps are such an important part of this story, so we think that'd be a really good one. We have a, we also have a lecture about the Western Reserve in general is actually the first one we have at the end of March, which is our state historian emeritus. Walt Woodward is going to give an introductory exhibit, an introductory talk. That is going to be a can't-miss lecture. I'm going to make sure that's on my calendar because Walt, of course, is our partner in the podcast, but he has written extensively for the magazine on this topic, too, so that's a can't-miss lecture. Yeah, and if anyone wants more information, these are just sort of the first few programs we have scheduled, but this is a two-year exhibit, so we'll have two full years of programming related to Western Reserve going on at the Society. And they can find that by visiting our website and our online calendar, uh, following us on social media, or sort of just, we'll, we'll be mailing things out and sending emails as well. So Great. Well, I want to thank my guests today, and I want to say be sure to check the show notes for the podcast for links to articles about the Western Reserve from Connecticut Explored. We'll have the Litchfield Historical Society's website there for you. Our new spring 2023 issue is almost out. And don't forget to subscribe to get yours at ctexplore.org. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan of High Wattage Media. Please join us in two weeks for a new episode on Grading the Nutmeg. This is Mary Donahue for Connecticut Explored.